Hi, Veggie Mates. Welcome back to the Veg Talk podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Davey, and this is episode number 79 with Adam Sud, aka the plant based addict. So, this is one of my favorite episodes to date. Adam has shared his story with thousands of people. He's eloquent in his delivery and his message is profound. Get the pen and pad out. I'm sure there will be nuggets from this conversation you will want to fold up and keep in your pocket. This is a story of immense struggle, support, love, pain, and anger. This is a story of recovery and a story told by someone who wants to give back to the addiction community by pushing the boundaries and adding to the body of knowledge that we already have access to. I consider myself lucky to call Adam a friend. I don't think there are many people on this earth like him. He's a caring individual with an infectious energy, which I have no doubt you will discover in the next 90 minutes or so. As always, I will catch you on the other side of this conversation to wrap things up. So without further ado, I introduce you to Adam Sud. All right, we're rolling with the man himself, Adam Sud. It's um, it's an honor to have you on on my show. Oh man! After hearing your your story multiple times, different platforms, you've definitely done some amazing shows that are out there. And I yeah. suppose if anyone in in my audience has heard Plant Proof Podcast, Rich Roll Podcast, yeah any major health yeah. conscious podcasts that are out there, it's likely that they've heard your story or, or come across you yeah. at some point. And yeah, your story is so moving and it compelled me to reach out to you the first time I heard it. It was a very moving experience doing a very, well, for me at the time, it was a very long run at altitude. Yeah, that'll do it. And it strips you of barrier. Wow. It was just, yeah. It was an amazing conversation, just me out there. Um, so, yeah, I was just listening to you and Simon Hill have a chat and, yeah, it compelled me to reach out to you. And then fast forward, it must have been at least 18 months. Yeah. Our friend Chris Petrolisi messages me saying like, yeah, my friend Adam um, wants to come running. And I'm like, oh, is it Adam Sud? <laughs> He's like, yeah, he's moving here. I'm like, yeah, what man. the hell? This is amazing. He's moving to Portland. Like, what a great like series of events that led us to this moment. <laughs> yeah. To like, not only because it, I think it's really cool that we didn't meet first doing a podcast, that we met first running, True. right? Which is really cool because if you think about it, I don't know if there's any like significance or whatever, but the idea that the reason why there was uh, an intention to connect was you heard me speaking on a run and then we meet having a conversation on a run. And then that leads us to having this conversation, which I think is kind of cool. That is kind of cool. Yeah, no, it is. It is really amazing. And you've been a huge help with my running as well. When I I tackled that, that kind of ridiculous week of I just showed miles. up and helped you run, man. I don't know what else I, how much help I was. Well, it was, it was really nice to have someone who I could use, not use. That sounds wrong. No, it's exactly what I, it is. I could yeah. have as like that, um, yeah. you know, that, 
that partner that's going to keep me accountable. Yeah, it was a great run. You know, a we, day after a marathon yeah. as well. So Li- it's like, and what's interesting is we ended up running right past here. So I was thinking, yeah. right, I'm on the way here and I'm looking around and I'm like, this looks really familiar. And yeah. then I see Interstate Avenue. I'm like, hang on a sec. I think the only time I've ever been on Interstate Avenue was when I ran with you that morning. Yeah, we did that eight mile loop yeah. and we ran past you know, my place where we are right now isn't too far from where we ran. I'm just like, yeah, I, I didn't even notice it when I moved into this spot until I drove out to go to the grocery store. And I saw that intersection where we crossed the highway and I was like, I know where we are. Yeah. 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 So. Really cool. And then one more thing before we get into it, the, the people that I've been able to introduce you to, mm-hmm. it's probably only a few people, Anna, mm-hmm. Christian come to mind. Yeah. And the just what they've told me after meeting you, and I completely agree with them, is just you you have an energy about you, and uh, when you're when you're speaking to someone, yeah. you're really giving your all in the conversation, and you feel like I don't know. There's just like after having a conversation with you. Both Christian and Anna were were both just like wow, wow, that's, wow, a, this, that's a great compliment. Yeah, you know, so I, I'll I'll take it. I'll yeah, take the impact sure. you have on people uh, is amazing, and the work you're doing now, and the fact that you're sharing your story so openly, yeah, um, is 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 amazing. So I thank you for that, and yeah, my yeah pleasure. thank you for coming on the show and. Dude, of course. Yeah, it's yeah. awesome. It is awesome just, to have I'm, you. I'm, I'm glad that, you know, when I moved here, I don't know very many people. And I'm just so grateful that you're one of the people that is now part of my friend group. And, you know, we run together regularly. Uh, the non-alcoholic beer that I love because of you. You've it's tried it now? Yeah, I tried it. It's, it's phenomenal. Delicious. Yeah. Yeah. So, Actually, Laura reached out to me on that's Instagram. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, were, we were at the store and we were looking. She's like, I saw Matt posted about a non-alcoholic beer. We should try it. And sure enough, that's, yeah, it's great. It's delicious. We yeah. had one, I had the stout last night. Yeah, we had the blonde, okay. which is great. Yeah, so. no, I'm a fan of all the ones I've tried. Yeah. Uh, for those, if you're interested, I've just done Dry January, and it's called Athletic Brewing. Athletic Brewing, yeah. And yeah, they do have a, a few selections, and phenomenal. So good. Really, really good. good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it kind it's, of replaces it that. It does. You know, because yeah. last night, we had pizza. And we watched a movie and we had, we had pizza and beer without alcohol, which was great because we're doing, uh, you know, we're, we're doing caffeine free, we're doing alcohol free, we're doing sugar free for the next 100 days. And yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's a nice experiment. It is. So let's, um, yeah, let's learn a little bit about Adam Sutt, the, All right. the Texan. Well, so yeah, I'm a... I'm a seventh generation Texan. So I, my dad, I'm actually seventh generation Houstonian. So um, I'm also Jewish. So I was raised on a diet that consisted mostly of burgers and barbecue and bagels and blintzes. And I say this on every one of my podcasts that I've done. It's like it's a standard American diet wearing cowboy boots with some chutzpah. And chutzpah, for those of you who don't know what that is, it's a, it's a Yiddish word for like confidence or, you know, get up. And, um, you know, growing up, I was born in the early 80s. It's part of that generation that um, that uh, really played outside, you know? 
that got to, I got to ride my bike to and from school. My dad taught me how to play baseball and basketball and football. And my mom was really uh, influential and inspiring my imagination. And I had this, you know, childhood of growing up, you know, I grew up privileged and um, swimming in, you know, the, the, the family swimming pool in the summer and just running around with just your bathing suit on and no shoes, no shirt all the time. And it was amazing. I, I mean, I have some of the most incredible, wonderful memories of my childhood. I would do it again in a heartbeat. And, um, but at the same time, uh, I, I struggled really secretly, um, with my relationship to myself to not feeling enough for the people in my life that when you're 10 for me when I was 10 my parents and their approval it was everything and I don't I you know there were certain things that happened certain conversations that occurred that sort of caused me to question you know I remember specifically coming into the house and my parents asking me why I already had love handles. I was like 10 years old, as I said, and I didn't know what those were. I don't know where they come from. I don't know how you get them. I don't know how you get rid of them. And so already I was confused and like looking for the first time looking at my body with question, like what, wait, what's wrong? And it was explained to me, you know, what it was. And I remember saying, you know, well, I've seen, you know, other people, you know, dad looks like he has those. And you know, she, my, my, you know, my parents response is, well, he's 40. You shouldn't have them yet. And it was just like, it was like instantaneous change in what I believed about myself. Because before that moment, I was completely accepting of myself without question, without judgment, just fully embracing my physical body in complete acceptance, running around without a shirt on swimming without a shirt on. Um, but like, honestly, like looking at my body and being proud that of what it did, you know, feeling strong as a 10 year old, I was, I was always not the biggest kid, but I was always one of the stronger kids. And now it was like, immediately, I believed that there were conditions upon which I was and was not allowed to feel that way about myself. And it, posed this even more terrifying question, which was, well, shit, if there's one condition, there's got to be others that I don't know about. And what are they? And now I became hyper vigilant to cues from other people as to what those conditions could be, you know, and how could I find a way to outcompete my lacking? And so from that early on, my relationship to myself became a competition. It became in opposition to what was because what was wasn't enough. And at the same time I was diagnosed with ADHD, I grew up part of the Ritalin generation. I don't think I technically meet the qualifications for ADHD anymore. I don't know if I did at that time. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just, it was just another example. I, I got put into a room with an individual who did tests on me. And the purpose of the test at that time, for me, the way that I heard it was, we're going to find out what's wrong, you know? And so already it was this experimentation on a broken child is the way it felt. You know, they did these things where they put these electrodes on your head and you're forced to do these 
concentration tests and you see how it goes and then they come back with a report that's gonna tell me, okay, well, we figured out what your problem is. And almost like you're not in the room. Right. It's almost like they're really talking to your parents or, yeah. but you're absorbing all of this, I all imagine. Yeah. And, in conversa- in, and in language that was way beyond my capacity to fully understand. And so I felt like a fish out of water. I felt like I was grasping for air that wasn't there. I felt like I couldn't comprehend any of it other than they're saying something, uh, there's something wrong with me. And it was scary and it was confusing and there was uncertainty behind it that created that fear and that, and that worry and that, oh, now what? And then what does that mean? And then they presented this story to me that said, here's what is wrong with you. You are this. You are attention deficit hyperactive disorder individual. You're ADHD. That's, remember the wording that they used was you, you are ADHD. And what we do is for individuals like you, we put you on a medication called Ritalin. And what Ritalin does is it corrects the problem. Now, when you say I am ADHD and medication corrects the problem, for me, that meant it corrects you. No matter what, without this medication, you are a problem. And it really affected me. And I believe that that was the first time I was given permission to look outside of myself for ways to fix what the, what I believe the world was telling me was wrong with me. And when I moved, when I started high school, we moved to Austin, Texas, and I didn't know anyone, didn't have any friends. I was awkward. I was late to start puberty. And so I just felt even more lost than ever before. And I was really, you know, the thing is, before we moved in middle school, I'd really started to find myself um, as a a pretty talented kid in drama and and, in art. And I'd always been a talented artist, but I'd really found this uh, excitement about drama. And, and, you know, I've, I've started to analyze the possibility behind it was drama allowed me to be anyone other but me, which I liked. I could be on stage in front of everyone and they wouldn't be looking at me. They'd be looking at the character I portrayed and I could portray anybody and felt comfortable felt comfortable yeah it was an escape and i i I was actually accepted into a very prestigious drama school called uh houston school for performing and visual arts you have to audition for it It it's very difficult to get in and i was really excited about it and then we had to move to austin and so that was taken from me right before starting high school not knowing anybody so i it was i was already in a bad place and my at the time my prescription for Ritalin had been switched to this new medication that at the time, which was called Adderall. And everyone, I'm sure a lot of your listeners do know what Adderall is. For those of you who don't know what Adderall is, Adderall is simply another stimulant-based form of medication that's used to treat ADHD. It's also used to treat narcolepsy. Um, it's a stimulant in the, in the sense that it, it is amphetamine. That's what this stuff is. And that's why it works so well. And I didn't know that it was a party drug, but other people did. And I quickly found my value. I quickly found the way in to the crowd of people that I was not a part of yet, which was to be the guy that brought Adderall to parties. Phenomenal. Yeah, I'll do that. Absolutely. And I still hadn't used it yet as a drug. But I remember I went to this party. I got invited. I was just so excited. I was so excited because if you think about it, like what I was seeking wasn't just to be with people because I was with people every single day in high school. Like You can't not be with people. You're in the room with them but I wanted them to see me as valuable. 
I wanted them to see something about me that they couldn't get from anyone else that would say, no matter what, there's never going to be a person that we want other than you for this. And Adderall was it. And um, I remember using it for the first time and it just seemed to, it was this unbelievably profound feeling that I had been struggling with these problems of feeling not enough, that my weight was slightly an issue at the time, that I didn't have any confidence. My school study habits were, they were garbage. Um, and that created tension between my dad and I. And, you know, for me, my dad, I've always wanted to uh, impress him, make him proud. And so, I, and, and it was impossible for me to get onto the football team because I didn't play for the high schools of that team. I, I couldn't be a sports. My dad was all about sports and I couldn't do that. And I wanted to, I wanted to, always wanted to be an athlete for my dad. And I couldn't. And this was, I immediately felt confident. I felt this unbelievable ease at which I could talk to people and feel really powerful in myself. Uh, I, it's a, like I mentioned, it's an amphetamine. So not only does your metabolism go through the roof, but your hunger drive diminishes. So the weight loss is solved. The confidence issue is solved. The value issue is solved. The homework and study habits issue is solved because if I take extra Adderall, I can study like crazy. Solved as long as you're taking it. As long as I'm taking it, exactly. It was the most successful solution I had ever found to the perceived problems that I couldn't correct about myself. And not only that, it felt really good. It felt so amazing. And I just got hooked to this offering of what it, what it presented to me. It was, it was like, oh, this is, you know, that life you've been wanting? Here it is. Just take it. So easy. It requires so little effort of you. Literally, all you have to do is do what you normally do with just a little bit more. You just take a little bit more. And everything you thought you couldn't have, here it is. And for someone who's as impressionable as I was at 15 years old, who wanted so desperately to feel those things, to find it in such an easy package and delivered in such a way that not only was successful, but felt successful, was just, I couldn't ignore it. And it worked. It worked like a charm. I mean, I lost the weight. I had friends. I had girlfriends. I got a scholarship to the college that I wanted to go to. I competed in drama. I actually ended up playing lacrosse. They started a lacrosse team. I ended up playing a little, a little bit of lacrosse, which was great. Um, and I mean, like, literally, it felt like the more that I did, the more of the person I was supposed to be, I was able to become. And so you couldn't convince me that I had a problem. You couldn't because I couldn't. There's no way that I could describe to you how successful it felt to do it. And it literally felt so successful that there was no possibility of a long-term negative outcome because of how biologically and emotionally and psychologically successful it felt both immediately and in the perception of long-term. You couldn't do it. So how does the relationship change? Yeah. Why, why can't, why is it not sustainable to keep it at this successful yeah. level? Why can't you keep operating the way you were so it's the traditional stories the typical story right more becomes not enough so 
from a biological standpoint, what occurs is something called neuroadaptation or habituation, where anytime your brain is, is, is subjected to a supernormal stimulus, which is what drugs and alcohol are, they, they elicit a dopamine response, which is the reward uh, chemical, this, which is why it actually feels so biologically successful, because dopamine is the chemical that gives us that feeling that we've just done something that rewards our statistical long-term outcome right? It's rewarding us saying that what you've just done is the best thing, not just immediately, but for your long-term outcome. And over time, what happens is those receptors start to defend themselves against that supernormal stimulus. And now in order to feel a, what would be considered a normal range of reward, you have to engage in these supernormal stimuli. You have, I have to take the Adderall. It, it's no longer that, that increase, that lift in the circuitry. It's just getting to baseline. And when that happens, when you just get to baseline, baseline was always miserable for me. So that's what happens when I got to college. When that shift started to take place, I noticed all the problems that I was escaping starting to return. The weight, the feeling of lack of confidence, the inability to focus, the, all that started to come back because those dopamine circuitry was starting to defend themselves. And it required more and more and more. And more Adderall is not necessarily pleasurable because what ends up happening is I would do so much. I would be up for days. I would be doing, so the average prescription of Adderall is about 10 milligrams for every 24 hours. And I was doing 450 milligrams in a 24 hour period. And I would do it for about six days straight without sleeping. And when you do that regularly, you end up having some really, I ended up with very, uh, uncomfortable and sometimes incredibly destructive obsessive compulsive tics uh one of which was i couldn't stand to feel the the hair on my head touch my ear right i know really odd um and one night was just staying up and i was, I was having to brush the hair off my ear over and over and over and over again and when i got up in the morning to go to the bathroom i had brushed all the hair clean off the side of my head like it was bald it was gone and it was you, you, I was very diaphoretic, which is where I was very flushed, red, and sweating all the time. I smelled very toxic. Um, it became this relationship of not being comfortable and not being able to be present in my life. And then the tool that I had used to successfully escape my life had now become an incredibly painful experience, and I couldn't stop doing it because even though the after the after effects like the the long-term effects of use were painful that immediate release when you first feel it still has the remnants of that success it still has the remnants of like oh there it is there's that little bit like i can get this back again because there it is like if i just figure it out if i could just get enough or figure out the ratio if i could get the math right I'll get back to the way it was. And that's really, in my opinion, what sort of perpetuates the idea of when somebody is so struggling, they're so far beyond, like, I think they have a problem when it's so obvious that they do and they're confronted. That's where it's so difficult for that individual to say, oh my God, you're so right. I need to stop this. Because to that individual, it you, they could never explain to you the relief that was offered to them when they first started using. And it was so successful. It was such an amazing tool to, to feel 
like they have control over what was once uncontrollable that and the belief that they can get it back is so strong that they're, they'll be like, there's not a doubt. There was not a doubt in my mind that I was in a bad way. Not a doubt. I mean, I dropped out of college. I ended up becoming a criminal drug addict. I developed the de- dependency to fast food. I was eating 5,000 calories of fast food a day. I was weighed nearly 350 pounds. I was completely separated from my family and my friends. I was living like a hoarder in my apartment. If I, if, if, if you could get me to speak honestly about my situation for five minutes, what I actually understood in my head, I would tell you everything that you are saying to me. You're absolutely right. This is a nightmare. I feel miserable. My health is, in the, is, is awful. My future makes no sense whatsoever. I haven't worked in over a year. I have no like valuable connections with other people. And I, f- like, I have no self-worth. Uh, I literally am in con- consistent opposition and competition with a body that I believe is working against me. And that I wished every single day I didn't have. It was a miserable experience. And at the same time, that's how I felt the day it worked. I felt just like those things. I felt like my, I didn't have an understanding of who I was. I didn't feel like I was worthy of connecting with other people that other people didn't want to be with me. My future didn't make sense anymore. I didn't really know like, you know, what my value was. And then this thing dropped into my life and answered it for me. And it seemed it was a parody of it, but it seemed like it answered it for me. And so I don't know any other solution. You're just telling me what I already know. And I know it, but unless you're willing to say, if you do this, you'll have the same result. I can't listen to you because I don't know any other way to do it. And this worked once. So just get the hell out of my face and let me figure this out. That's where the anger arises because it's not that we don't know what you're saying is that we do know, but we can't not do it. This is one of the only times I actually think that the double negative works really well and should be allowed in the English language is to talk about substance abuse is that a person with substance abuse, it's, it's not that they don't see it. It's just that they can't not do the thing that you don't want them to do anymore. They can't because it's so far beyond the ability to see how they got there. Like the shift into that place was such a subtle, slight, nearly imperceptible shift where you just, I just woke up and I was at the worst point I've ever been. I don't know. I don't remember how it got there. And so, you know, October 21st of 2012, um, my life just got way too far, way too far gone. And I tried to end my life by suicide with, uh, by overdose. And, you know, I can remember waking up on the floor of my apartment in a puddle of vomit in a pile of fast food garbage. I, I was alone. My windows were boarded up and I had this incredible experience of relief. And see, I thought that I did, that, that relief confused me because I thought that the attempt that I had made was to end my life. But the relief that I felt was asking me to consider that there was something about myself, my life, the people in it, and what I wanted to live for that meant enough to me. It was so meaningful that I loved so much that even though I knew today would be as painful or more, I still wanted to be a part of it. And so that relief says... Suicide wasn't you trying to end your life. It was you trying to end your pain. And I checked into rehab two weeks later where I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, erectile dysfunction, bipolar disorder, suicidal depression, anxiety disorder, sleep disorder, and attention deficit disorder, as well as obsessive compulsive personality disorder. 
I was put on a cabinet's worth of medication for life. And it nearly shattered me because I was a cliche. I walked in, going to do 28 days as a vacation from drug use, get like a handle on shit, go home and start using again. But then this meeting that happened in the doctor's office within 72 hours of checking into treatment was like, that's not an option for you. Not if you want to live. It really became very clear that sobriety in and of itself doesn't save people's lives in the long term. It's a really great short-term answer to me possibly dying from another overdose. But in the long term, if I didn't change everything about the way that I was willing to move through the world, I didn't have five years. And thankfully, a year before that, I got to attend an event hosted by a man named Rip Esselstyn. This is while you're in the midst of... Yeah. Yeah. 2010 was when I met Rip at his event. And... Rip is the executive producer of the film The Game Changers. He's the author of The Engine 2 Diet. He's the, he's the creator of Plant Strong. Um, and I learned everything that you and I now practice on a daily basis, which is plant-based nutrition, healthy movement, joyful movement, uh, restorative sleep, all these things. And I learned it from some of the greatest thought leaders and doctors in the world of this lifestyle medicine. Dr. Michael Clapper, Doug Lyle, Jeff Novick, Caldwell Esselstyn, uh, Chef AJ was there. Um, it was, you know, I was presented with the opportunity to take charge of my life at that time. And the reason why I didn't was because what addiction is at its core. And what I was experiencing at that time was an inability to be present in my life because my life had become too painful a place to be. And I just wasn't willing to give up what was allowing me to escape that pain. I wasn't ready for it. You know, they talk about rock bottom a lot. And rock bottom is true. Like I, I do believe that rock bottom is necessary. Not everybody's rock bottom is the same, but I do believe rock bottom is necessary, not because it gets you to hate yourself enough. That was something I tried to do for a long time. I tried to hate myself and my life enough to want to actually give up what I was doing. I did self harm. I, I practiced self hatred on a regular basis. I would beat myself. I would, you know, do all the things. But what's what? What rock bottom does is it presents to you front and center for the first time the real possibility that everything that matters to you could be gone tomorrow if you don't make a change right now. It's the, 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 it's, it's the reality of what matters most to you, not what's the matter with you, what it is that you love enough, not what you hate enough. It's that, the realization of losing those meaningful connections that's why people decide to change. That's why I decided to change when I survived the suicide. It wasn't because I learned to hate myself a little bit more. It was that it was like, shit, I almost lost everything that matters because I couldn't see it anymore. And so I learned how to adopt this plant-based diet. And when I was presented with these diagnoses, I said, okay, well, look, I don't know a lot about psychology or addiction recovery or anything like that. But I do know from what I understand is that A plus B equals C when it comes to nutrition. And A plus B equals C for the most part when it comes to movement. And I don't want to be diabetic. I don't want to have heart disease. I don't want to have erectile dysfunction. I don't want all these things that I was suffering from. So let me do that. Let me make that the backbone of my recovery. And that's what I did. And that was, that was what you thought. Fast forward yeah. 365 days yeah. when you're in rehab. And I was you in rehab. thought back to... Thought back to that. I was literally like transported because this doctor was telling me everything that you would expect a modern doctor to tell you, which is diabetes is genetic, heart disease is genetic, you're going to be on medication for the rest of your life, you're looking at insulin, it's not going to get better, it's going to get worse. 
And I was like, well, why was I just told by some of the greatest doctors in the world that that's not true? And what the doctors in the, at the retreat were saying is that the reason why this is happening isn't because you're broken, isn't because you're sick. It's because your body is doing everything it's supposed to do. This situation is predictable. It's reasonable and it makes sense. There's nothing wrong with you. This is a, uh, a, a re reasonable response to how you're living your life, which is why disease reversal works so well with nutrition, uh, because it's a predictable response to the change in the environment in which a person finds themselves in. So I said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to like fully buy into that narrative that I am not broken or sick. I am completely complete as I am. My body is fighting for me. It is well, it is a healthy body trying to fight disease. And I don't know when that shift really took place uh, because I, I wasn't allowed to adopt the plant-based diet in the rehab setting. I had to wait until I was in sober living to do it. And I was getting up every day still in that mindset of like, I got to outcompete this broken body, right? This body is my problem. And I'm doing this diet to remove the problem of my body. And I don't know when the shift happened, but I can remember having this thought where it's like, you know what? This doesn't work. And I had spent over 10 years eating foods and doing drugs that have done serious harm to my body. And I'm still here. I'm still alive. My body has never once given up on me. What if I was to approach this and not see my body as my competition, but as a partnership? Like, what if I was to say to a body that's never given up on me, all right, you know what? If you're gonna if you're gonna take care of me like this, if no matter what you are you're gonna show up and you're gonna fight like hell for me, I'm gonna do the same for you. I don't know what I'm doing, and I think that what it comes down to is most people believe themselves stuck. I don't think we're stuck. I think we're just committed to patterns of behavior that helped us in the past, and that we don't know any other way to do it. And I I allowed that that realization to come to my mind. Like I don't know what I'm doing. I really don't, and I don't know any other way to do it, and I'm finally okay with that because my, arrog my arrogance, my ego of believing that like I'm going to figure it out on my own just isn't working, and so that's when I went back to the Engine 2 diet, the book, and I was like, that's what I'm going to do because these people have a knowledge base of change that I don't have, and that's what I want, and so I just did that every single day. I got up, I committed myself to eating these healing foods, as a way of service, nurturing a body that was showing up for me, as a way of like, it, it was like a, a, a loving partnership, an act of servitude to a body that was showing up every day, no matter what I did. It was like, we're, we're not done yet. We are not done yet. If you just please give us the fuel, the, the energy, the sustenance that we need, watch what we can do. Because we've been waiting your whole life to do this for you. And we're not done yet. You're not done yet. And once that happened, it was almost as if I could hear every cell of my body say, man, we've been waiting for this. Just check this out, man. Watch what happens. And that's when the food became an act of recovery. Because then it became acts of service to what my body could do for me. It was no longer about needing to be thin enough to feel good, needing to lose the weight, needing to lose enough weight to consider myself recovered, needing to be sober long enough to consider myself recovered, but rather, you know, what does my body do for me every single day, right? It's an affirmation of recovery. It's an act of self-love and self-care. 
Within three months, the diabetes, the heart disease, the erectile dysfunction were completely reversed. Within 10 months, I was off of every single medication I was put on in rehab, including every single psych medication. And within a year, I'd lost over 100 pounds. I've lost about 180 as of today. And I think that food became this vehicle that reconnected me to those meaningful bonds that I had been disconnected from early in life. And I think that there's a, an amazing opportunity there to see the truth about addiction when we think about it. And, you know, I've been, I have uh, over eight years, I, I, I don't like to say sobriety, I say continued recovery. Um, and I don't even know if I really like the term recovery. Like, I think I'm not going back to something, you know, I think it's, it's act of discovery. You know, I'm discovering, I'm rediscovering the way in which I best serve myself every single day. And, you know, it's been the most incredible journey of my life. Um, and I really believe that the system that we have designed for addiction recovery is flawed. It's, it's massively flawed. And I've dedicated my life, this part of my life, to enhancing the knowledge of what the real world observations of recovery and substance abuse are telling us. And what we don't know is what food does in recovery. There's never been a single study. And so I now have a nonprofit called Plant-Based for Positive Change that is dedicated to advancing the research on the effects of nutrition and addiction recovery. We're actually leading the first controlled trial, investigating the effects of nutrition on early addiction recovery outcomes. I've partnered with doctors Dean and Aisha Sherzai and Tara Kemp uh, and a microbiome specialist named Frank Cusimano. And we've just completed a 12-month participant part of the study. We're now doing the data analysis and microbiome sequencing, and it's groundbreaking stuff. So it's amazing. Yeah. It is phenomenal. I've got, I don't know, from that passage, so many thoughts and questions from from what you went through. Yeah. One of them is, is relationships, right? Sure. So throughout this whole period of time, mm -hmm. you're still in Texas and you've got family and friends that are there yeah like they're in the same city what was your relationship with them like how hard was it for them to understand what was going on and how yeah. to act through it like how to, how do they Man. navigate that yeah like it's you know tricky that's a tough one because one of the things that I, I i i do want to say is you know my parents they cut me off um in a loving way, which is a common thing, right? It is. And so the thing was this is like with know, addiction, with addiction, you know, um, and I look, here's the thing. It, it, it has to, I have to say it because I come from a place of privilege. Like I wasn't, when my parents cut me off, I wasn't destitute, right? I was going to run out of money. I would have been homeless eventually, but you know, I wasn't like left with nothing, but my parents were like, if you want to ruin your financial future, if you want to do that, we can't, we can't contribute to it anymore. And, and, you know, what I think the most important thing that my parents did was without question, without fail, they always reached out in a way that said, we love you, whether you're using or you're not. And we love you, whatever state you're in. And if you ever need help from us to take care of this or to work on this and move forward, we'll come and we'll help you because we don't want you to do this alone. And we, we don't want you to feel alone but we also can't be the financial backers of what is harming you anymore. And I think that that's really important because what they did was they, they, they created boundaries while also welcoming me in. It wasn't a wall. It was a wall with a door. And it said, here's your doorway to us. 
You're welcome anytime you want, as long as you fit within this doorway. And everything that you ever need from us to, to get your life on track is welcome once you walk through this door. But you can't come here and steal from us. You can't come in here and lie to us to get money. You can't scam us anymore. And we won't, con we won't be, you know, donating or uh, depositing money into your account, your bank account on a regular basis to, to do this. We can't do it anymore. And I think it was, that's a difficult conversation to have because when the person is struggling and then that, that financial boundary is set, it's almost as if I very much at the time personalized it. I was like, well, you know, F you, you are clearly, you know, you don't care about me when really it wasn't that. And I knew that. And so when I did need help, they were the first, when I decided I needed help, I, they were the first person I reached out to. But, you know, my sister didn't talk to me for a year. Um, I, I rarely saw my parents, but they made their, their presence known to me. They were, t they were calling me regularly. They wanted to know I was safe. They couldn't stop me from doing the things I was doing, and they were very aware of it. But they were always making themselves known or making it known to me that there was never going to be an ounce of judgment when I decided I can't do this anymore. And I think that's an important thing. And then you're also a twin. Yeah, I've got an identical twin brother. So the uh, Anna, yeah, I think most of the audience know that Anna had a twin brother um, that we unfortunately lost uh, in 2016. And from witnessing their relationship when mm -hmm. they were together, you know, it's pretty special. It is. You know. So you didn't mention your brother. What What was that relationship like through? Yeah. Uh, through that time, because I imagine it was also extremely difficult. You know, the thing is, Bobby and I have a very uh, close relationship and uh, we always have. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I had the hardest time forgiving myself for was the way that I treated him when I was using. Um, I used to steal from him. I used to, to, you know, scam him all the time and get him to... Uh, he was prescribed Adderall, but he was never abusing it ever. And I used to just like steal it from him and I used to take it from him. And, and you know, he could have, and it would have been fully justified, you know, said, you can't do this shit anymore. Um, I can't be around you if you're doing this. But I think what, you know, Bobby has one of the biggest hearts of anyone I know. And um, he always made me feel like I was never judged. Uh, and, you know, the thing is, um, one of the lessons I've learned most about this is how valuable time is. Um, and I, I, there's an interview with a good friend of mine, David Clark, that we lost about a year ago. Actually, I think like a year ago this last week. Um, he was a person in long-term recovery. He was a vegan ultra runner, an amazing guy. Um, unfortunately he died from complications to back surgery. But he did an interview where he talked about how valuable time is. And, and I listened to him say these words and they were, it was me. I was like, I could hear it. And, you know, he talked about how, you know, I was that person. I was that person that said, you know, this is my life. So if you don't like it, F you. And if it cost me five years, if it cost me 10 years, fuck it. I'm okay with that exchange. And you know what? Like that's a, that's a shit bargain. Because I think about, you know, if I had been successful in trying to end my life, you know, what would my brother, what would my brother do for five more years with me? Five days, five hours, you know, because we throw these numbers out there like they're nothing. 
you know, five years. Who cares, right? Because we don't see the we don't see the magnitude of it until we're presented with it. And you know, <clears throat> the things that we choose to believe have consequences on us and the people that we care about. And I fully believe that bullshit story that I'm fine with losing five years. Five years? Are you kidding me? Like, that's such an arrogant and and short-sighted and dismissive thing to think and say to somebody who would do anything for you. And I used to say it to people. I used to say it to my parents. I used to say it to my brother and my sister. Like, yeah, well, you don't know. I don't care. If I, you know, if I die in 10 years, I'm fine with this. This I'm going to live. It's like, I don't, it's, it's such a it's such a painful thing to say, and you know I had I had a, a hard time uh, coming to terms with that, um, and I have you know one of the greatest things about my relationship with my brother is that I a- ended up helping him adopt a plant based diet when he was two hundred ninety pounds and diabetic, and he's since then lost a hundred pounds. He reversed his diabetes in like six weeks, and he really found his passion again for activism and photography. He's an amazing photographer. And so I feel like, I don't think like I owed him a debt. I don't believe in karmic debt. I don't believe in that shit. But what I do believe is that I was able to offer value in a truly altruistic and loving brotherly fashion to help him come alive in a way that made me feel like, okay, you know, what, what I went through mattered, you know, because then I got to be of service to him because of what I went through and now the way that I look back on it, I got to have that experience and that, that perspective when working with my brother. And it's just been incredible. You know, and I think it's important because when we, when we talk about addiction and when we talk about substance abuse, it looks like it's got to be that person who's at the end of the road. And it could just be that person who's struggling in silence. And, you know, we talk about it as like, Oh, the, my problem must've been Adderall. I don't, I don't have a problem with substances at all. Like I, what I mean by that is I don't believe substances are the problem. I don't think they should be illegal. I'm actually really proud of the state of Oregon for decriminalizing every substance. I think it's a step in the right direction because what we're dealing with is, you know, human beings have this profound need to bond. And I know you're a big fan of the book Lost Connections. I'm a big fan of the book Lost Connections by Johan Har, And he talks about this at great length is that humans have these bonds in life that give us the experience and the feeling of being alive in a meaningful way, a meaningful and loving bond with ourselves, both physically and emotionally, loving bond with other people that we share value with, and uh, a connection to meaningful work in a, an environment of shared respect, um, a meaningful bond with the natural world around us and a future that makes sense. And when we're fully bonded to those things, we want to show up and we want to be present for them. Every day, we want to show up and be present in a life that's that valuably and meaningfully connected. And so if an individual goes and uses, say, heroin or cocaine or marijuana or psilocybin, whatever, and they have this incredible experience that, that does disconnect them from that, and it's brief and it's convivial and it's joyous and it's like they're celebrating the, the momentary disconnection and sort of exploration of whatever it is that they're doing. And then they're confronted with an opportunity to continue using, just like anybody else. They're confronted with it. Do I keep doing this? The statistical likelihood of that person that's that meaningfully connected continuing to use is low. Because while they, yes, they had the same euphoric experience that anybody who's struggling had, they, are, they know that it removes their ability to show up and be present. They know that it takes them from those meaningful bonds. Now take someone who's disconnected from those bonds in life, given the same substance. The intention is different. 
they're using it because they can't be present in their life. So it's now a solution. It's not something that they're doing aside from the life. It is a solution to a life they don't want to be a part of. In that situation, when offered the chance to use, the statistical likelihood of continuing that use is very high, not because of the chemical hooks, not because of the quote-unquote addictive nature of one substance to the other, but because of the ability, it's, it's relief that it offers this individual's daily pain. That's what we need to be thinking about. That's when we talk about willpower all we want. You know, willpower being defined as the inability to refuse a momentary satisfaction for long-term gain, right? That's what you can define willpower as. I set aside this momentary, immediate satisfaction for perceived long-term benefit. That's willpower. But when we talk about substance abuse, we're talking about how it manipulates the dopamine receptors, right? It creates that reward system. So what you're asking someone to do in that, in that moment is to ignore what feels like the best solution for long-term gain. Willpower, the actual motivating will to survive willpower, is actually designed against this problem. It actually makes the problem worse. Because willpower in that individual's mind would say, choosing this feels like has the best long-term benefit because it gives me more of a reward than not using which means that from a biological standpoint, the way that the genetics interpret this choice says, well, doing the right thing actually feels less successful than the right thing. I mean, than the wrong thing. So willpower has to be thrown away. Like this is not a willpower thing. Abstinence doesn't work. We've seen it. 70% of people who check into treatment today will be back into treatment within a year. And that's because they're trying to I don't want to say most of them, but I don't want to say everyone, but most people are buying into the abstinence model, the AA model. It says your problem is your substance. You are an addict. You have a disease called addiction, which if I could remove anything from the world today, it would be that line that once an addict, always an addict. Um, and now what we need you to do is we need you to come back to this group every single day, recommit to that belief that you are a broken addict who cannot control themselves around substances and then avoid them for the rest of your life. And the abstinence model says to that person, what I really want, I can't have. And even though I really want it, if I do have it, it's going to ruin my life. And it creates this unhealthy relationship with not being able to see what is really important, which is how do I build a life where the substance is no longer necessary to feel meaningfully connected. I just think that like the substance abuse and addiction recovery system we have today is designed to make the problem worse not better and it, it like the statistics you gave before it yeah. works for some people right and there's oh, people yeah. that will and there's people that will contribute their recovery yeah. solely to something like aa yeah and you know here's the thing like i don't i don't think and aa is inherently bad i was gonna say it's not the fact that they've done that yeah isn't any less special right that they've been able to you know to to turn their life around. Absolutely. Yeah. I think sobriety, anybody who's seeking recovery is on a journey of self-discovery, right? My issue with it is the de definition, how you define yourself. You know, people, no one, and I'll say this with confidence, no one is born an addict. There's the situation where they say, well, what about people who are born addicted to heroin? They're not born addicted. They're born chemically dependent. There's a big difference, right? They're born because the parent, the mother, 
was abusing a substance and that chemical dependency became part of the child. So now when that child is born, if they take that substance away, they go through painful withdrawals. Well, that, that's not addiction. That's chemical dependency. It's completely different. And so there's nobody on this planet who is born addicted. It's a trauma response. It's an adaptation to an environment where they don't feel like they're able to be meaningfully alive. That's my opinion. That's what I see in real world observation. That's what I've seen for myself. It isn't the mainstream narrative, but the mainstream narrative hasn't changed since 1950. And that was my next, yeah. that's, you've segued into it. So challenging, challenging the norm yeah. often brings about, you know, people that are going to have bad reactions to it. Yeah. They're going to say you're wrong. They're going to say you're crazy. Yeah. But exactly what you've just said, if it hasn't changed since 1950, why aren't we thinking differently? Well, yeah. There's a dogma about it. You know, AA, I've been to AA. Look, when I first was getting into recovery, I did something called a 90 and 90, which is where you do 90 AA meetings in 90 days. And there's a real dogma to it. There's a there's a there's a real sense that like you do not challenge the AA model. Like you, how could you? You haven't been a part of this group. The old timers here, they got 20 years. You know how hard that is. You don't. How dare you? How dare you challenge the AA model? And the problem I have with that isn't that AA is wrong. It's that anybody who gets so locked into a dogma diminishes the capacity for critical thought and growth. Right. And that's what's so important about anything. Anything that is about lifestyle change is about enhancing both an individual, their life and the world should be open to opposing views so that they can meet that opposing view with open conversation and critical thought where say, okay, look, you think that something about what we do needs to change and should be different. Show me how and why. And if we show you that our how and why works better and is more you know, successful, then we'll stick with what we have. If you show of efficacy of your how and why, and it's repeatable, then we have to accept it. We have to, it's one of my favorite quotes from, comes from a guy named Ray Cronice, who is a NASA scientist turned you know, plant-based nutritionist. And he says that when your, your worldview conflicts with real world observation, it is your worldview that has to take second place. So like, for example, if somebody says, well, I don't think that, you know, eating dairy has any link to, you know, prostate cancer, prostate or cancer or whatever. And then real world observation, I mean, yeah, real world observation, scientific research shows there is a, there's a causation, I mean, sorry, a correlation between dairy intake and certain disease processes. If I say you're wrong, that's dogma. And that doesn't help benefit anybody. You, you don't have to agree with it to say that, yeah, that's, well, you know, I'm still going to keep doing what I'm doing, but yeah, that's true. It's out there. It's real. You know, that, if, if the AA model wants to say, we're still going to keep doing what we're doing, however, yeah, that's real. I'm fine with it. And this is how science should operate, yeah. right? It's, it's putting a theory out there, yeah. testing it. If it proves to be... Um, if it proves to be true. True, then great, great. but that we should allow yeah. critical thinking and we should allow someone to come in and say, hang on a second, I actually think I might have a model or a theory that uh, could be more effective. Right. Allowing that to play out, mm-hmm. see what the results are, 
and then make a decision. Exactly. And we see it in nutrition studies and we see like, yeah. there's huge problems with, you know, funding and where the funding comes from. Right. But again, where it seems like we're not allowing the whole theoretical benefits of science to take place yeah. because of worldviews. Right. And, you yeah. know, and that's, and that's the big thing. It's like, I'm not trying to prove any system wrong. Mm-hmm. What the point of the research study that I'm doing is to just bring a piece of knowledge that doesn't exist. And then when we take this piece and we add it to the puzzle, what does the picture look like now? Because mm-hmm. we think it looks like this. We think it, it has this specific view. But when we add this missing piece to it, now what does it look like? It's, you know, if you do a puzzle and then you don't know what you're looking at, sometimes you put a piece, you go, oh, I thought it was a dog. It's actually a, it's actually a sheep, a lamb. I didn't know that because we've added more data to the picture. And that's what I'm hoping this does. It's not, it's not trying to disprove anything. It's trying to create a greater understanding of what we're all hoping to understand, which is how do we serve people? in the most effective way that increases their statistical likelihood of success. Um, and so, you know, I think anybody who chooses the AA system for recovery should be applauded because it's a brave thing to do. I think AA gets a lot of things right, mm-hmm. right? They do. One of the things is that they recognize a community is necessary. Being a part of a group of people where you share a common goal and you share a common value. And also being a part of a group of people that say, I hear what you're saying and I believe you. Those are two things that are incredibly impactful for healing specifically. There was a time when there was a lot when depression wasn't considered a real thing. And then there was a time when it started to be considered as real. And people who came to those doctors and they said, I feel whatever they were calling it at the time, can't remember. I feel like I'm suffering from this. They go, yeah, I believe you. That single statement actually helped their depression more so than any other treatment at that time to be in a room with somebody who says, not only do I believe you, but I have something that can help you is incredibly impactful. So for someone who's never known any way to remove substances from their life, walks into a room full of people and they see people who have 20 years, 30 years, and then they look at that person and go, I know how hard it is. I actually do. And I believe you when you say that this is something that you do not know what you're doing. And here's the solution. It works. And it does for people. That is powerful. And I applaud the AA model for doing that, for creating this you know, sense of, you know, they don't, they don't take outside funding. They're self-supported, you know, they're not influenced. I love it. I think it's amazing, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't evolve. So. No, it's, uh, I think it, yeah, it brings about a lot of questions and where we left before diving into that was the fact that you have started this study. Yeah. First of its kind. Yep. Like never done. It's never been done. There's never been a single study of any diet ever in a controlled setting on early addiction recovery outcomes. And so what I mean by that is what we're doing is we're running a, tr- a, a research study where we're investigating two dietary protocols. So a person after 24 hours of exiting detox will have the opportunity to join the study if they choose. And then when they choose, if they choose to join the study, they have the opportunity to choose which dietary protocol they want to be a part of. One is a plant-based diet and the other is the, the control diet is the diet that's already served at the treatment center, which is like an elevated Western diet. It's kind of like a, uh, like a paleo diet. 
And the reason why we decided not to do randomized control trial, which is considered the gold standard of research, uh, is because I know that for individuals in recovery, and we see it play out in real-world observations, uh, that when individuals in recovery have power of choice, they do better. And so academia can scrutinize me all, all they want for being a control trial, not randomized control trial. I'm not doing the study for them. I'm doing it to help people. And so when they are put into the, the dietary group, they're obviously served a diet in this treatment center every day that matches the dietary protocol. They're given nutrition education that matches the group that they're put in. And then we observe various measurable outcomes, full lipid panels, high, sensitive, high sensitivity C-reactive protein, which is an inflammatory marker, vitamin D3, vitamin B12, vitamin uh, omega-3s. Uh, we look at the microbiome, which is your gut health. So we're looking at how changes in your gut microbiome and changes in your blood biomarkers also relate to changes in validated scales of measuring emotional and psychological outcomes, self-compassion, resiliency, depression, anxiety, obsessive-compulsive drug use, mania, the whole gamut. And so what we're determining is not sobriety as an outcome, because this is a study that takes place within the first 10 weeks of checking into treatment. What we want to know is that while an individual is in that treatment center setting, when they're completely controlled, how does diet and nutrition plus nutrition education help or hinder various factors of the early addiction recovery stage, right? How do we strengthen the recovery, the foundation for recovery? And it's pretty remarkable what we're finding. What we now know and what we now see is that the individuals who consume plants favor, do better in every measurable outcome. I can't obviously release data yet, but that's what we're seeing. We don't know. We haven't analyzed data, so I can't say why it, it does that or whatever. But it's, it's and this is, me, this is matching uh, epidemiology that we see take place. We know that cultures around the world, like the blue zones that eat greater consumption of plants, have lower incidences of stress, anxiety, and depression. But it's also important to note that that's not causation, right? Because if you also look at the blue zones, they also have their daily habits influence and reinforce meaningful connection to community, to, to purpose, to the natural world. All the things that we talked about earlier, their environment is designed to create meaningful connection, both with themselves and the people around them. Plus they eat a plant-based diet. And so when you look at epidemiology, you have to take it with a grain of salt and say, we can't say that's caused by the diet. And I'm not saying diet's going to, is. I don't want to say diet cures addiction because I don't think addiction is something that needs to be cured. I think it's a reasonable response to life. And but what I want to show is that nutrition plays a role in, in, in reinforcing the pathways within the body that help and, and, and enhance a person's ability to recover successfully. Yeah, it's kind of mind blowing. I mean, it's it's cr to me, it's crazy that it hasn't happened before because it's yeah. almost the perfect environment. Like, it's what a great place to do yeah. a study. Yeah, what a great set of and that's the outcomes. Thing. You know, a great set of uh, circumstances in terms of from a study. Yeah, you've got someone coming into a controlled environment, a exactly. controlled clinic, where this can take place. And you know, the thing yeah. is that because we're not looking at sobriety as an outcome, the data that comes from the study is applicable to the entire human population. Because what is unique about addiction recovery is that individuals in addiction recovery are forced to do the work that every human is forced to do at some point in their life, which is face parts of themselves that are no longer serving them 
and then have the tools and the ability to move through that with grace and with positive change. And so the, the reason why addiction recovery is different than the human population is because individuals in addiction recovery, their tomorrow is a lot less promised than the average person. So they are forced to do the work now. And so it's an unbelievable opportunity to bring data that every, this is not going to be data that'll be used for every, for, for people just in addiction recovery. It shows that we study it on addiction recovery population, but everybody can benefit from this knowledge. And that's really exciting. We've talked briefly with individuals from NIH about hopefully developing the first dietary standards for mental health recovery through the, the results of this study, which will be pretty groundbreaking. It's another thing I thought of this morning. So this morning I went on a run. Mm-hmm. I don't normally listen to music yeah. or anything. I just avoid headphones when I'm running. But today, given that we were going to be chatting, I did chat. I did um, listen to the interview you did with Pat McCauley yeah. on his podcast, Eat Green, Make Green. A lot of the things that you talk about, I was thinking about applying to my own life, mm. regardless of the fact that I'm not addicted to maybe any other substance than coffee. Right. I can still notice things that you're talking about that can be applied to my own my own life. Exactly. So it does seem like we're all on some kind of spectrum here. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a really good point. You know, when we talk about, you know, uh, mental health, when we talk about addiction, we're looking at a spectrum, right? And where, where do you fall on that spectrum? Because, you know, there's, you can, you can, you can say like, oh, well, you know, I exercise, I, you, you're, you're a runner, you run all the time. And so someone can say, well, he's, a, he's addicted to running. Well, okay, so let's just say for the sake of argument that that's true. Where and how does that negatively impact your life? Because if, if, if we're going to use the term addiction as it's defined, it's an inability to stop something that is continuously and consistently causing negative impact on your life and the lives of those around you. Right? And you can't stop doing it. So caffeine, how does that actually do that? And we use the word addiction so frivol- frivolously that I think that a lot of times we devalue the word. People say, oh, I'm addicted to sugar. Well, let's talk about that. What do you mean? Well, you know, every day I have a piece of chocolate. Okay. And if I was to take that chocolate away from you, what value add would it give to your life? And how is the use of it negatively impacting your life? Or is it that you're, you just have, there, this is a pattern of behavior that you have yet to remove. And the same thing we talk about people that say, oh, I'm so, you know, this is uh, something Laura has written about is that, you know, not using the word OCD when you mean, you know, uh, or not using the word ADD when you mean distracted. You know, not using the word uh, OCD when you mean, I can't remember what she said, but it's like we use these terms. They're considered cultural norm now to say like, oh, I'm just so ADD today. It's like, why? Because you were distracted a bit, you know? Oh, I was so OCD. Why? Because you were distracted. You could, you know, you were focusing on too many things. You couldn't, you know, whatever. Let's, let's be cautious and careful about how and why we use words because there is a definition for it. There is an individual who's suffering in some of those things. And when we devalue it, then when that individual says the word, we may not be able to hear what they actually are asking for. Totally. Because we're just using it. Yeah. Throwing it out there exactly. every every day. Another thing that I've learned through the book, mm-hmm. uh, Lost Connections, uh, that I absolutely had not thought about, never crossed my mind. 
uh, I hadn't heard anyone talk about it before was the fact that using the term mental health might in itself be problematic. Yeah. Because back to what you were saying when you were a kid is I have this feeling that something's wrong with me. Right. It feels like something's wrong with my... When we're talking about mental health, it's like something's wrong with my brain. Right. It, something's it, wrong with it, me. It reinforces a pathology mindset, right? It reinforces that there's a pathological problem that has to be fixed through pharmacology. And I am not opposed to medicine. I'm actually a big fan of it. I think that I don't, I don't think I'd be alive today if I wasn't given it. Um, but if we were to look at the average person, the, the, the typical worried well um, individual who is suffering and saying like, oh, I'm just so depressed. I have like, I'm suffering from mental illness. It's like, well, I bet you what you're more than likely dealing with is emotional dysregulation, right? You're just emotionally un like not unstable, but not, um, um, it's emotional wellness, right? There's not a, we're not raised in a culture where we're given the opportunity to have a positive relationship with the breath of a human emotion, right? We're told that one half of it is an indication of success. And that half, the quote unquote positive emotions are the ones that you have to be seeking all the time because those are indications that you're on the right track. You're doing the right thing. The other half of breath of human emotion, the negative emotions are an indication of failure, that you're doing something wrong and you have to avoid it. You have to confront it, fight it, insult it, medicate it, whatever you need to do to get back to the other half of human emotion. And that's so messed up because it's unavoidable, right? Humans are feeling creatures. That's what we are. And we feel deeply. That's what we do. And it's a good thing. These are reasonable responses to life that make sense in a meaningful way. And it's in our ability, in our, sorry, it's in our inability to willingly feel half of that breath of human emotion, either through learned uh, behavior or being told or whatever it is. It's in our inability to willingly feel half of it in a compassionate way that we actually miss out on some of what is best about being alive because we're in such opposition to what makes sense and we're in such we're trying so desperately to fix what isn't broken that we don't see it for what it is this constant companion in life that shows up for us to guide us towards what is really taking place and what really matters to us and that's a big flaw and like i said I know I wasn't raised that way. I wasn't raised to to see anger and anxiety as something that's normal. I was raised to it was like, oh, you're anxious. We should go see a doctor. That's a problem. I've, yeah. Yeah. It's 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 like it's confined to the head. Yeah. Exactly. It's confined to the head. Yeah. And you're going to need yeah drugs you're going to, to need drugs fix it. Yeah. When, Interestingly, you know. And I like and again what yeah. you said. But like, I I don't want anything that we've said today to be like, oh, they're anti AA, yeah. right? They're anti medicine, right? It's more the application of it and how yeah. it's being used. It's, it's, yeah. Think about it like this, right? So an individual is suffering with depressive experiences, right? They're feeling depressed. They're feeling anxious. They're feeling all those things. And they have never learned the tools and the ability to sit in those feelings, feel safe, explore them with somebody in a way that they can move through it positively and gain a greater understanding. For that individual, which let's just be honest, is most of the people that live in our culture, the addition of medication gives them permission to do that because it softens the noise of that experience of anxiety, right? One of the reasons why MDMA works so well for PTSD treatment, okay? 
um, is that it does facilitate that experience when you're in, when you're experiencing PTSD and you're going through the process of reliving that you, you try to examine the feelings and the moments that created the, 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 the trauma, you can feel incredibly unsafe. And in that feeling of being unsafe, it's very difficult to remove that experience. What you're trying to do is you're trying to separate the memory from the feeling of unsafe. Cause right now in the present moment, you're safe. But when something triggers those memories, you feel incredibly unsafe. And that's where the anxiety comes from. I'm not a therapist. So just putting that out there. But it's your, it's your learnings. Right. Yeah. So when a person is uh, administered small amounts of MDMA, it releases incredible amounts of serotonin, incredible amounts of the chemicals that give us that feeling of safety and love. And now when they think about that experience, they do it in a full body sensation of love and safety. And then it's learning to be in that experience of remembering what happened while feeling safe. And that's what a lot of these medications do for people. They're not as effective. It's amazing. Actually, the, 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 the results on the MDMA treatment is pretty incredible. The individuals who've done it, 50% of them experience complete reversal permanently within two weeks, which is shocking. And that's really impressive because one, the normal PTSD treatment cycle is years and it, re- it requires consistent multiple times per month meetings with the psychiatrist or therapist and lots of medications, which let's just be honest, not everybody's privileged to afford that. MDMA, two weeks, completely, uh, let's say healed permanently. That's what the data is showing. That's, that's remarkable. But going back to what we talked about medication, I think medication is amazing in the acute right? To get someone to be able to develop the skills in a healthy way, to be able to help someone develop, like, let's say someone uh, has ADHD and they go, oh, we're, we're going to use a little Adderall. Okay. Why are we going to do that? Not as the fix, but as the, as the, as the tool that allows the person the ability to safely make the changes to their life that allow them to better manage and better live with the ADHD. Not as a dependency. Right. So here's an idea, right? What a lot of people, I'm sure, when they listen to this, are thinking, possibly, is that how, how in the world could MDMA mm. do that? My experience with MDMA growing yeah. up is going to a club. Yeah. And Well, that's the thing. Exactly. So people, when, the they, think setting, about, when right? they think about it, one is the setting, two, it's the dose. Right, so people immediately perceive mm-hmm. that these people are going into a room and they're given what's called a hero dose, and they're going to have a party, and they have the same amount that's given at say a, a concert or a rave or at Burning Man or wherever, and it's not that. It's it's smaller amounts. It's done on a shorter period of time. It's done administered by a professional in a safe environment. The risk is is pretty low. Of, of actually, I don't know if have any adverse effects from it, um, and so it's not what people think. And so, but you know, then again, it's like when we talk about decriminalizing substances, it's like, I don't think it's a good idea to legalize people to go and buy psilocybin at the store because that is going to alter your ability to your motor skills, all these things. I don't want people driving around high on shrooms. Like I don't want that, but I don't want people arrested because they've used it. I don't want people to feel like they're criminals for using something in, in a way that's safe. Right. Like, I mean, look, People can go out and, and drink. And potentially with, highly beneficial. People can go out and drink right now and drive drunk. It happens every single day, but it's culturally considered okay. Like not driving drunk, but drinking, you know? And so we need to create that perspective. Like if we look at 
uh, what happened in Europe. Um, I'm not 100% sure. I think it's either Switzerland or Sweden. Um, a couple of years ago, the prime minister said, look, we have a horrible problem with heroin. And what I want to do is I want to legalize heroin use for heroin addicts. Uh, and people said, you can't do that. It's chaos. You're going to create a horrible problem. And she said, no, here's what we have. Chaos is unknown individuals using unknown substances of unknown potency in unknown places from unknown criminals through unknown criminal means. That's chaos. What I want to do is I want to know who's using it, where they're using it, how much they're using, what exactly it is that they're using, that it's that they know the dose that they're getting, that it's administered safely in a place where they feel cared for. And the number of overdoses from heroin since that went into effect is zero. And so when we make the substance the problem, when we criminalize the substance, we take, I like what, uh, there's another book by Johan Hari called Chasing the Scream. I haven't read it yet. You've told me about so it. Chasing it's in the my, Scream yeah. says, look, Drug use is and always will be, it always has been part of human life. Right? We're going to use substances that alter our reality. It's part of what it is that humans do. But what we've done is we've taken the most successful, most lucrative, most in-demand market ever existed, and we've delivered it to the most violent people who've ever lived. And we've said, you know what? You control it. And then we blame the substance for the problem instead of what's our part in it. We have, when you look at the age of prohibition, during prohibition, there were bar owners shooting at bar owners every time. People, they only had, you know, they had to go in these speakeasies and they only had like $5 to spend on alcohol because it was only that one night they were going to get it. They wanted the biggest bang for their buck. They wanted the strongest alcohol possible because they wanted to get drunk as, as, as drunk as they could on as little as they could. And people died all the time from alcohol poisoning all the time. It was constant. It was a daily thing. It was a violent experience to procure alcohol. It was a dangerous experience. You could, you could get killed just trying to buy it. Then what happened after prohibition? We regulated it. We knew where people were buying it. We knew who was serving it to them, where they were drinking. We knew what exactly they were drinking. The people knew what they were drinking. They, I go to a bar right now and I ask somebody, what percentage of alcohol is in there? They're going to tell me and it's going to be accurate. And I'm going to know the decisions that are going to best benefit my evening if I decide to drink how much of that drink. I know what is right and what's wrong for my health. The, what happened was we made it safe and we took it out of the hands of criminals and we need to do the same thing with all the other drug use. We need to. It's it's going to it's it's the next step that has to happen, I think. Yeah, I'm glad that you went into depth on the decision that we've made in Oregon here yeah. because I think on face value it's something that can be taken way out of context. Yeah. And like, oh, yeah, they, must be, they, they, they must be crazy. Well, and but, people, people yeah. confuse decriminalization with legalization. They think, oh, they decriminalize it. People can go to the store and buy heroin. No, you can't. What they mean is that if you're caught with it, you're not going to be prosecuted, which is a good thing. Because what it says is that instead of taking this money and putting it into task force, task force uh, that are used to separate people from society and give them a criminal record, which means if they do get sober, they're still never going to be able to work in the private sector again. What we said is that like we see you as a human. And we know that there's probably a real problem behind what is going on. And now we have the opportunity to use those funds to create programs to reconnect people into society, just like what Portugal did in 2001 when they decriminalized every substance from cannabis to crack. They stopped pe putting people in prison for it, and they created programs and systems that allowed people to reconnect into society. They, got, they put uh, recovery programs into place, and they said, hey, look, you're a mechanic. 
And actually, Johan Hari talks about this in one of his TED Talks. Uh, you're a mechanic. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to find an auto body shop. And we're going to say to them, if you employ this individual, we're going to pay half their wages for a year. This gives you a sense of value and a community of shared respect. You're not seen as a criminal who's being given a job. You're seen as an individual who's part of society within a country that cares for you, that's willing to invest their money into your betterment, not by gifting you money, but by giving you opportunity to be of service to other people and earn a living through your skill set, which is huge. That's huge. And we know that it works. The, the, the drug use is way down, hep, hepatitis is way down, HIV is way down. It's, it's a massive success. And I just I hope that we move that direction in this country when it comes to substance abuse, the way that we look at it and the way we look at people because we're focusing on the wrong thing. We're, we're seeing addicts as criminals, right? And when, when we define people by what they struggle with, we create a real issue because addicts are not criminals. They're humans in pain. People who are depressed are not sick. They're humans in pain. People who are suicidal are not sick or crazy. They're humans in pain. When we stop defining people by what they struggle with, it might be easier to listen to their needs. And if we listen to their needs, we might see that their pain makes sense. And I think that that's incredibly important because so much of these people, what their pain is about is they want so desperately to reconnect to this life that they once had or never have had. And they don't know how to do it. They don't know how to do it, and they're stigmatized by their definition of their struggle. And the start of that connection for people, it's just simply another human willing to listen to them instead of telling them, like, you're a criminal or you're crazy or, you know, you have a problem. So I think it's just I've lost too many friends to suicide. Uh, I You know, I've lost six friends to suicide and three to overdose. And... um, I remember the first day it hit me the hardest was when a friend of, of mine who has a daughter was asking me about uh, for support because her daughter's friend had uh, successfully suicided. And it just came out of my mouth. These words came out that said, well, whenever a friend of mine suicides, I was like, holy shit, did I just say those words? Like, not just say them, but like they just fell out passively. And that's a problem, especially right now during COVID. And I don't mind talking about this right now because I think that what we're looking at is we're looking at an environment that creates greater disconnection than we've ever experienced. And that's why there's an 800% increase volume on the suicide hotline. There's a 400% increase of depression and anxiety across the board. And it's not like on March 14th of 2020, the entire country just developed this pathology called depression and anxiety. No, no, no. That's not what happened. It makes sense. And if we can use that to see the truth of it, we might be able to see how, how this all makes sense. I just love the way you, you're able to logically talk your way through the experience. Mm. It, makes so, it makes so much sense. It does. It makes sense. It makes so much sense. And when... Uh, as you said earlier, barely anyone is qu- equipped with the tools and right. the understanding. And when they're told that something's wrong with them, it doesn't make yeah. any sense. But yeah. if imagine if you did have the tools. Yeah. If you had some understanding before experiencing these feelings. Yeah. And recognizing it and how to navigate through that. I mean, it would be and so different. Imagine if the, the situation is that people are still being raised the same way they are. But when met with that problem, they go, oh, don't worry. 
there's nothing wrong with you. In fact, your body and your brain and all the things are doing exactly what they're supposed to do. Um, it, there's just some things that need to be changed a bit. And if you'd like to change them, here's what we do. And here's what we expect. These are the typical results we see. And actually, it makes sense. You're fine. Like if that was the majority, and I'm not saying, like there are people who are seriously struggling, they will more than likely be on medication for the rest of their life, and they should be, I think. Um, but for the average person, that response that I just you know, delivered is really what we need to start doing. We need to say, I'm going to sit with you and I'm going to help you figure this out because you're a human being with unmet needs. And I'm going to help you figure out what those needs are in an environment that's safe. We're going to use the tools that we know, whether that's medication or not. And we're going to help you figure this out because it makes sense and you're not broken. Incredible, man. No, it's, it's cool to go through this with you. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't think, you know, we go on a run and we get 40 minutes in or an hour in. Yeah. We cover a, a wider spectrum of topics. It's yeah. cool to dive deeper into just the one topic. Yeah. Um, what I was going to ask you next was back to that back to that time where you're talking about going all in on plant-based diet. Yeah. How did you then how did you then go about changing your life? And what was your experience coming coming out of that? Because yeah. I'm assuming it's not easy. Yeah. Uh, easier said than done. Sure. And how did you apply what you'd learned yeah. to, to making your life One better? of the things I told myself was, you know, that I, I had to figure out why I was going to be willing to be comfortable being uncomfortable, right? There's, there's not going to be a, a way to do this where I felt at ease at all times. And so I gave myself permission to struggle and that's fine. Like that's expected. That's reasonable. It makes sense. Um, and it had to be about something that I loved enough. It had to be about those meaningful bonds, not, you know, I could say, well, Oh, he was overweight. He had diabetes and he had heart disease. He nearly died. That's gotta be why he wants to change. But no, if you think about it, like, yeah, I had those things. Those were things I was struggling with and I didn't want to struggle anymore. Why not? Like take it that step further, go into why like negative outcomes or negative consequences aren't the motivation for change, right? They're, people aren't motivated by negative consequences. Negative consequences highlight meaningful bonds in your life that are being threatened. And it's those meaningful bonds in life. That's why we do what we do. That's why we learn to do something better or we learn something new so that we can create a greater connection to those meaningful bonds. So I had, to, I had to identify those things for myself so that I knew that this was about gaining rather than removing. And I created a very, very simple plan for myself where I told myself early on, I'm not, my goal is not to eat every recipe in the plant-based world. I got the rest of my life for that. That's the goal to have the rest of my life to do all these things. I want to make it so simple that it's nearly impossible to get it wrong. I want to make it easy. I want to make it repeatable. And I wanted to make it at least joyous enough that when I get up to do it, I have some sense of looking forward to it. So I identified the foods that I could do that with, which was oatmeal in the morning. It was black bean bowls for lunch and for dinner. And I said, all right, I'm going to do this for the next seven days. And I'm really going to do it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do as best as I can to limit the frequency at which I allow foods that don't meet that criteria into my life. And I wasn't perfect. But I'm going to be very honest about with myself. I'm going to be highly conscientious and self-aware of what I'm choosing and why I'm choosing it, even when it sucks, even when it hurts. 
Um, watching the pleasure trap by Doug Lyle, that Ted talk was massively helpful in me understanding why it was so difficult sometimes to do what I knew was the right thing to do. And why, if I knew what to do to be happy and healthy, why were there times when I didn't want to do it? That Ted talk was great for me. Um, and I said, I'm going to do this for seven days and I'm going to watch what happens. It's not about losing weight. It's not about reversing diabetes. It's about how I feel, how, how my body shows up. And at the end of the seven days, what I found joy in doing and what I noticed I was able to do with ease and what seemed to make me feel better and move better and think better, I'm going to keep. If it didn't work, I'm going to replace it with something that is still within the guidelines of what I'm trying to do and keep going another seven days. I said, you know what? I'm 37 days sober at this point, 37 days in recovery. I can't even look at a month down the road, let alone the rest of my life. And from a, from a, a technical standpoint, the human brain can't conceptualize beyond 30 days. It's very difficult for the human brain to understand resources necessary for that kind of change. But seven days is, if I was to say to you, here's what I want you to do. I want you to eat an entirely plant-based diet for 60 days, all right? Your brain doesn't understand how much food it needs, all that stuff. But I said, all I want you to do is eat a plant-based diet for seven days. Immediately, your brain already has an understanding of how much food is required, how much cooking time is required, you know, how much uh, prep time is required. It can conceptualize it. So I said, you know, the rest of my life is an idea that I can't even conceptualize. Seven days is an experiment that can be planned. I knew exactly what I was going to eat before I even went into the kitchen. I knew exactly what I was going to eat the day before. I knew it. It was planned. It was on my schedule. I, it was, it, I removed as many steps in between what I needed to do and what I, what I wanted to do. Right? How do I accomplish it with ease and with as little steps as possible? And I just committed to it. And it seemed to really work. I didn't plan on doing that same meal plan for 10 months, but that is what happened. And as a result, I started to find myself creating these meaningful bonds with the food, the choice, the decision to eat those foods, right? Not specifically oatmeal, although I have eaten oatmeal every morning for eight years, but it's about the plant-based diet because I saw that every time I felt better, every time I moved a little bit easier, every time I noticed myself being able to just do the normal things like bend over and tie my shoes became a little bit easier. I, it was because of the dietary changes and that made me fall in love with the diet. That made me fall in love with the willingness to be uncomfortable and do it anyways. Mike Tyson has a quote. He says, discipline is sometimes doing what you don't want to do, but doing it as if you love it. Amazingly brilliant quote from Mike Tyson. I was going to say, I <laughs> didn't quite expect uh, a Mike Tyson quote to, to uh, appear, yeah. but yeah. And so I think that that's, that, that was really what it did. And it, there were times when I, you know, I had amazing support from family, I had amazing support from friends. It's really important to understand that like, I recognize the privilege that I sit in when I talk about my experience. I had a family that was willing to welcome me home with open arms when I walked out of the treatment center. I had a family that was willing to support me financially through my recovery. I had an amazing support system of counselors and therapists who were willing to be the enemy for me if I needed them to. Meaning that like if I was having a bad day and I just needed someone to yell at because I couldn't allow it, right? They were there. And so I see it. Like, and I understand that that's not everyone's situation. And I completely appreciate it. Um, and I think that I know for a fact that everything that I've accomplished today would not have been possible for me without that support.
And I think that's incredibly important that none of these things that I talked about, while it sounds like when I tell the story that this was a story of one, goodness, no, this was a story of me surrounded by an incredible amount of people with an incredible amount of love and hope for me. That's why I'm so successful. You are an incredible person. Um, I think you are the perfect person to be to be sharing your story. Mm. I love the the amount of the amount of depth that you've gone into asking different questions, asking yeah. yourself different questions to the norm. Yeah. It's how you got here. Yeah. You know, yeah. you've you've really deeply questioned what it is. And it's not just you. You've got resources out there. Yeah. Johan Hari. What's his name? Johan Hari. Johan yeah. Hari. Great book. I, I just think everyone should read it, whether yeah. you're struggling or not. It changed my perception of yeah. just the just the possibilities. Just who thought gardening would be <laughs> It's a great who thought gardening would be yeah. anything beneficial i know to to helping someone and i think because you're armed with so much knowledge and experience yes you may have had a privileged um, background you may yeah. have had you were in a place of privilege to come out of this yeah but you may be and there's probably plenty of people out there too that are going to be huge in the future of helping the people that aren't in the privileged mm. position. Thank you, man. I really appreciate that. Because although they're not in a place of privilege, there has to be a way yeah. for them to. Oh, yeah. There has to be. There has to be. And running around Portland this morning, I went yeah. through the city. Yeah. And I just, again, I couldn't help but think yeah. about... And I just think that those people out there could easily have been me if i hadn't had the support i had exactly yeah exactly so i really hope that in in the not too distant future i think what you said before about taking a step in the right direction with decriminalization there has to be more coupled in with that yeah to to really start seeing there's got to be programs and systems that are put in place to helping those individuals who still feel a need to use to reconnect to a life that's meaningful to them and I, I don't have that answer. Like if someone out there is listening and does, please, please use it. I don't have that answer. Um, I'm trying my best to do and create uh, uh, change where I can. And I think with the study, that's what I'm hoping. But those other things we're talking about, which I know are necessary, I don't have those answers. And I, I hope to one day. But if someone else already does, we need you. Yeah. No, yeah, I think you're... You're doing amazing work, and before we before we wrap this up, I'd love to know where we can find you on social media. Yeah. Uh, if you don't mind being contacted, how people can contact you, the best way to contact you, and then also um, your study, your nonprofit. Yeah. What can we do to help? Yeah. So you can follow me at Plant Based Addict on Instagram. If you want to contact me, just send me a DM through Instagram. It's really easy. I also have a Facebook page by the same title, Plant Based Addict. You can message me there. Um, uh, my nonprofit is called Plant Based for Positive Change. You can go to the website, plantbasedforpositivechange.org. The study is called The Infinite Study. And if you'd like to make a contribution, you can contribute directly to the nonprofit through the website. Or we also have a GoFundMe campaign set up for The Infinite Study where you can make a contribution there as well. Um, and here's the thing, right? This is what's so great. So 
you have a following of nearly like 10,000 people, correct? Everyone has this idea that, oh, I need to be able to make a large contribution to make a difference. Well, the fact is, if, if every one of your followers were to contribute just $5 to the GoFundMe, that would cover the microbiome sequencing. Just $5. Just $2 would cover half of the micro... And that's a big part of the study. You can make a massive difference if you're listening with a very small contribution. The ability to create change does not necessarily require an individual to make a massive commitment. It can literally be just one less cup of coffee than you normally have per month. Use that money, contribute it to the study, and let's let's make some change and literally help change the way that we approach addiction recovery forever. Well, thank you for all that you do. Yeah. Thank you again for sharing your story so openly uh, with the world. Oh, my pleasure, man. Um, you know, I do have one more question for you, if we've got time. Yeah, we got time. Yeah. Telling your story, what does that mean to you? Because uh, you've done it so many times. Yeah. Do you? What does it mean to you? And do you learn new things every time you tell it? I do learn new things uh, frequently. I don't know if it's every time, but frequently mm-hmm. I do. I do learn new things. I see uh, things differently as I've gone through it. Telling my story, sharing it is, for me, uh, it's the greatest way that I could continue to honor people that I loved and have lost. Um, because what I really want to do in my, my goal is to remove the shame uh, and the belief that you're in competition with yourself and that, that you're this broken person. Like I have a, I have a suspicion that the friends of mine that I lost and I, these weren't, these weren't just acquaintances. These were very dear friends. Um, they, they, and I know how they felt. Um, there was a belief that everything about their life that's wrong is the worst it had ever been. And that tomorrow was certainly going to be worse. And everything that they've been told will work isn't working. So nothing will work, right? The medication isn't working enough. The interventions aren't working enough. And they believe they're so broken that it's just going to perpetually get worse. And it's that belief that leads people to make a decision that tomorrow is no longer what they want. And um, telling my story is like, I know that feeling. I've been there. Um, It's... You know, I think that there's, I, it's, it's me saying that I'm okay with the fact that I was wrong. I don't mind being wrong. Um, I think that there is great power that comes with humility. There is unbelievable uh, strength in humility and acceptance and forgiveness. And there's unbelievable potential that comes from a willingness to stop trying to be right all the time and just be right now. And... I, for most of my life, believed myself certain about so many things. And what I I love so much about being able to share my story is the recognition that I'm not that anymore. That I'm more than okay with not being certain about most things. Because I'd rather make a difference than make a point. And hopefully, sharing my story is helping somebody out there. I don't know if it helps a lot of people. If it helps one person, that's enough for me. Um... And it's, you know, I think it's necessary for me. I'm, I've always been that person that wants to, 
offer value to other people. Maybe people will say this is ego-driven. Maybe part of it is. That would make sense. But I, I think that me being able, able to share to share my story is, for me, my act of service. Well, mate, I think that's a fantastic place to wrap it up. I know you've got... I got a coaching call. Go to yeah. Coaching call at three. Yeah. So um, once again, can't thank you enough. Uh, it's so great to have you as a neighbor in yeah. this area now. I, it's it's amazing to know you and, and to have met you now. And and yeah, I feel I feel quite lucky to have yeah, you. Yeah, now we get to go for a circle. run and then yeah. drink a flat white. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, look forward to more of that and uh, really look forward to hearing more about the study absolutely we'll do another we'll do another episode when it comes when the stuff is released everything totally so yeah everyone go check him out uh he's a legend and uh we'll we'll chat again soon mate thanks man take care cheers hey everyone so what did you think i hope there were some nuggets for you to take away and apply as i had promised in the introduction i believe that adam's story has the potential to help so many people not just those who are battling addiction So please share this story to anyone who you think might benefit. If you are in search for help, there are organizations out there. If you live in the United States, the National Suicide Prevention Number is 1-800-273-8255. If you live in Australia, you can call Beyond Blue at 1-300-224636. If you live in the United Kingdom, you can call Samaritans at 116123. If you live in another country, please search for your local support line. As Adam mentioned, you can find him on Instagram at plantbasedaddict, and you can find his nonprofit at plantbasedforpositivechange.org. Next week on the Veg Talk podcast, we are chatting with the founder of UK clothing company Ethics, Benjamin Johnson. Until then, keep it plant-based and I will catch you all next week.